This is The Storied Outdoors, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us. This essay is entitled Fishing with Dad, written by Dr. Brian Gill and read for you by Brad Hill. Many of the most publicized events of my presidency are not nearly as memorable or significant in my life as fishing with my daddy, Jimmy Carter, the 39th President of the United States. I walked down the stairs of the cabin where seven other men and I would call home for the weekend. This weekend was the thirteenth year in a row where my buddy Andy and I found ourselves scratching our annual itch for adventure on what we called a man weekend. Andy was a college friend who turned accountant and bank executive. He's since become the CFO of one of those large hospital groups in Nashville known only by a series of initials. In another life, he would have been a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret, hence the consistent call to adventure. But instead, he was an accountant with an insatiable desire to be outside. I'll share more about Andy in a future essay, and one that warrants more focused attention on our friendship. To this point, mine and Andy's man weekends had included rafting the Okoe River, camping in the North Georgia mountains, hiking along the Appalachian Trail, fishing in South Alabama, and sea kayaking along the coast of North Carolina an adventure we talk about to this day when the waves were 12 feet high and we almost lost his older brother to the undertow. That story always ends with us reminiscing about how much fun it was even though we, we all almost died, which was only partly true. Nevertheless, when the question arose as to what new adventure we would seek that year, I suggested we try our hand at fly fishing something neither of us had attempted before. We assembled the group of men, and they agreed this was a worthy endeavor. So, I booked a couple of guides for a half-day waiting trip on the Tuckasegee River near Bryson City, North Carolina. I was the first one awake that chilly morning in the Smokies, so I grabbed a cup of coffee and stepped out onto the back deck to admire the view. The sky was pink, and the sun had not yet risen above the mountains. As I drank my first sip of coffee, I heard the echoing call of an adult tom gobbling on the roost just down the old road from our cabin. To toy with him, I called back with a series of hen yelps. He answered my call, and I'm certain if we'd stayed longer, we could have seen him strutting down the winding road in all his iridescent glory. Not because of the quality of my calling, but since the wildlife in this area is mostly undisturbed, or at least domesticated from the rising number of second homes blooming due to the demand of weakened warriors like myself seeking adventure. It wasn't long before the other men woke up. We grabbed our gear and headed out to wade the Tuckasegee for some late spring fly fishing. It was my first time fishing for trout, and my first time using a fly rod as well. I was downright giddy at the thought of landing a trophy rainbow trout. I imagined myself whirling the line through the air in perfect rhythm and watching the dry fly land softly on the surface after making a perfect long cast into a bubbling run. 
My anticipation grew as we arrived at the river's edge. The fog was beginning to lift and hovered above the water between the steep banks of the Takasigi. It felt like a scene from a river runs through it. Granted, it would have been an outtake since none of us knew what we were doing with a fly rod in our hands and none of us looked like a young Brad Pitt either. But it was springtime in the mountains of North Carolina and we were waist deep in a river. And for a moment, everything was right in the world. The guide service we hired for the half-day waiting trip provided the chest waders, rod and reels and all the tackle. So we suited up and waded into the frigid river. The water was breathtakingly cold, but we were determined. Our guide was young, and he knew we were inexperienced. Looking back on that trip, I'm certain he was frustrated with our ignorance, but he didn't show it. Knowing how little we knew about fly fishing, he taught us how to plop the nymph upstream and let it sink into the current and get pulled downstream. A far cry from what I'd imagined it'd be like and nothing like what I'd seen Brad Pitt do in the movie. The guide called this a dead drift, a technique I know well now, now that I'm a more experienced fly fisherman, and an effective one at that, in the hands of a better fly fisherman. We didn't use any type of indicator, and I was too green to know it would have made the fishing much easier. Heck, I didn't even know what an indicator was. All I knew was it functioned much like a bobber, but that was a faux pas to call an indicator a bobber. But that didn't really matter much to me. I was living a dream. I was fly fishing, something I'd never done before in all my years of fishing. Fly fishing was alluring to me as a child. I always pictured it as a gentleman's sport and one I wanted to be a part of. I didn't know any fly fishermen growing up in Eufaula, Alabama, where bass fishing was king. But I saw photos in Field and Stream magazine and dreamed of one day netting that same big trout as the man on the cover with the pipe sticking out of his mouth, wearing chest waders and a brimmed hat. I dreamed of one day holding my rod overhead bent in a shepherd's hook bow as the water rushed around me the same way he did in the photo. But my childhood reality was much different. Bass fishing was all I knew. It was a kind of prerequisite for living in Eufaula. There was a sign at the entrance of the town that said, Welcome to Eufaula, big bass capital of the world. <laughs> People kept stealing the letter B from that sign, and I'm sure the droves of spring breakers caravanning down Highway 431 got a good chuckle as they passed through on their way to Panama City Beach. The lake I grew up on was an 85-mile stretch of the Chattahoochee River along the Alabama-Georgia state line. Known to people from Georgia as Walter F. George Lake, the name of a U.S. senator from Georgia. But to professional bass fishermen and most anyone else you'd talk to, it was simply Lake Eufaula. <laughs> Don't you try to convince an Alabamian otherwise. This 45,000-acre reservoir was home to the late professional bass fisherman Tom Mann and Mann's Bait Company as well as Southern Plastics, manufacturer of 85% of all soft plastic fishing lures in the world. Bass fishing was and is a major part of Eufaula's economy and the large reason my dad was drawn to this quaint town. This quaint town of 13,000 people 
when I was just five years old. Fishing was second nature to me as a young boy. Growing up, Dad and I fished nearly every weekend in the spring and summer. Deer hunting took up our weekends in the fall and winter. But when the water warmed the slightest bit, you would find my dad and me bass fishing in the lake in our old bass tracker or surrounding farm ponds in our 12-foot john boat. He trained me early, cutting my teeth on a cane pole and crickets fishing for brim. Then graduating to a Zebco reel with chicken livers to catch catfish. And quickly learning to use a baitcast reel. That is, after learning to train my thumb to regulate the speed of the spool. Prior to learning that skill, there were many trips where Dad spent the majority of his time undoing my backlash. But he was patient. Looking back now on this side of fatherhood, he was more patient than I'd realized at the time. I don't remember the first fish I ever caught, or my first fishing trip for that matter, but I do remember the first time Dad took me bass fishing. We were sitting in the kitchen of our house in Eufaula getting ready for a fishing trip on the big lake, as I called it. Dad was changing out the line on an Abu Garcia 5500C3, and my job was to hold the pencil he'd stuck through the spool of strand fishing line while he reeled. I stood in amazement as the spool rotated, lightning fast in my hands. As I was accustomed to only using a bobber, the thought occurred to me, Daddy, how will I know when there's a fish on, on the end of my line? He finished spooling the reel and instructed me, all right, close your eyes, bud, and hold the rod tightly. I closed my eyes hard with anticipation and gripped the corked-handled rod as tightly as my six-year-old hands possibly could. He tugged with a series of quick jerks on the end of the line, and my heart leapt. You feel that, he said? That's what a fish will feel like. It'll feel like something bumping on the end of your line. I distinctly remember the only thing I caught that day was my dad's hat, jerked it clean off his head. But it was the first of countless trips my dad and I took in search of largemouth bass, <laughs> and not the last time I caught his hat. Dad was never interested in fly fishing, so since he was not interested, neither was I. I followed his lead and we were bass fishermen. Dad's logic was, why would I catch an 8-incher when I can catch an 8-pounder? And I didn't have an answer. So, we fished for big bass. And boy, did we catch big bass. It was not uncommon for us to each land a couple of 8-pounders in one outing. One of Dad's best days on the water was a stringer that included 5 bass over 10 pounds. The largest of that haul, a 12-pound, 4-ounce largemouth is mounted on my wall in the basement. Unfortunately, I was on a church trip with my youth group when this epic trip occurred. But I'm sure God has his reasons for such things. We caught big bass regularly and loved every minute of it. My personal best being a 9-pound, 10-ounce that I refused to mount because I wanted a 10-pounder. <laughs> I later realized my scales were not calibrated correctly and were measuring about mm, 8 ounces too light. A tragedy at the time, but one I've since worked through. Again, I'm sure God has his reasons for such things. 
Since switching mainly to fly fishing for the better part of the last decade, there are two important aspects of the sport I like most. The first, that it is it's more refined sport. I appreciate the art of fly fishing and its unique congeniality that separates it from other methods of fishing. I believe Tom Brokaw said it best. The fishing is a religion, fly fishing is high church. The second is that you don't get in a hurry when fly fishing. You have to read the water and mind your surroundings to be successful. Want to know what the bass are biting? As Tom Mann would say, use any color worm you like, as long as it's purple. Want to know what the trout are biting? Look at your hat and see what type of bug has landed on your head. Or look underneath the rocks and see what nymph you should use. Being aware of the ecosystem around you is just as vital as knowing how to land a fly gently in a stream. And that can't be accomplished in haste. Fly fishing has forced me to slow down and enjoy the art of being one with the water. It's made me a, a better caster and a more strategic fisherman with how I approach a hole. Fly fishing has taught me that the river isn't something to conquer, but something to become in order to find the hidden treasures underneath the surface. Don't get me wrong, I still love landing a monster largemouth on the lake and driving like my hair is on fire from hole to hole on occasion. But, given the choice, I'd rather be in a quiet stream or in a rocky river with a fly rod in my hand waiting for a hungry trout to rise. So, to answer my dad's question, why would I catch an 8-incher when I can catch an 8-pounder, it's just different. There's something special about fly fishing. It's hard to explain. Many times I've returned to that kitchen scene from my childhood when I first learned what a fish felt like. It's a sweet memory and one I think about each time I feel the bump bump on the end of my line. On that chilly morning in the Takasigi, I found myself closing my eyes trying to imagine what a trout would feel like on the other end of that nymph. After three hours of drifting, that single run, that cold morning in a little North Carolina stream, and missing fish that could have been rocks or sticks for all I knew, I caught my first trout. My heart leapt when my line tightened and felt the tug of the mystery fish under the surface. Point the butt of your rod downstream, the guide shouted. I did. Strip the line with your left hand, he continued. I did. The little trout didn't fight much, but it was thrilling nonetheless. I was ecstatic when the guide sloshed over to my spot and netted the fish. It was a wriggling little eight-inch rainbow trout, the most beautiful fish I'd ever seen. I gazed in childlike wonder at this fish. I'd never held a rainbow trout before. I'd never seen how many colors they had along their slick skin and the watermelon green and red along their sides. The way the sunlight caught their rosy cheeks bringing out the red, blue, and purple opaqueness was unlike anything I'd ever seen. But for about ten minutes there was a feeding frenzy in that hole, and I caught five in a row. It was truly a wonderful experience, so wild and beautiful. An experience I've had many times since, but never seems to grow stale. An experience I couldn't wait to share with my future son, who my wife was expecting at the time. 
It's been several years since that chilly morning on the Takasigi, and I've since had a son of my own. Over the last five years, I've been cultivating a love for fishing in him the same way my dad did with me. I started him out with a cane pole and crickets and taught him how to watch a bobber. He's since graduated to a small Zebco and recently learned how to bait his own hook and land the fish all by himself. We're still working on taking the hook out of the fish's mouth, and we're a long way from a bait cast reel. But he'll be there before I know it. Unlike my upbringing, I also long for the day I can teach him how to cast a fly rod and reel, and the meaning of ten and two, and the difference between a bobber and an indicator. But I'm sure he will enjoy it because he'll be fishing with me the same way I enjoyed fishing with my daddy. For Dad and me, it wasn't the task, but the time we spent together that was special. In a recent trip to Lake Gunnersville in North Alabama, where I do most of my bass fishing these days, my son and I found time for just the two of us to go fishing. We'd been there for over a week, and my son had been playing with his girl cousins and needed some daddy-son time. So we broke away to fish for small bluegill and sunfish along the rocky seawall of our lake house. The crickets were plentiful, but the fish were few. As we sat there on the ledge of the retaining wall, feet dangling over the edge, watching the bright orange bobber rise and fall to the rhythm of passing boats, he leaned his little head onto my chest and said, Daddy, my favorite part of this trip is right now. I choked back the tears from my eyes as I thought about how I would give anything for just one more fishing trip with my late father who passed away nearly two years ago at the time of writing this essay. But all I could do was squeeze him tightly and say, Me too, bud. Me too. Many times I found myself retreating back to that chilly morning in North Carolina where I felt as though I was part of the river, part of the mountains. As I replay the experiences of that trip in my mind and many adventures since, I think about the adventures I want to share with my son, about the man I want him to become, about the man I've become, about the man my dad raised me to be. Oh, how I want him to experience the rushing water against his waders and the thrill of the catch in his hands. But more so, I hope I'm leading him to discover a love not just for adventure and creation, but a love for the Creator as well. I hope he heeds the call for adventure, but also pursues the one who put this urge for adventure in his heart. And I hope he never loses the urge to find out what's just around the river bend, but also takes comfort in the old roads of faith that his father and his grandfathers and his great-grandfathers walked. The same old roads that Andrew Peterson refers to in a song to his son that reads, Keep to the old roads, keep to the old roads, and you'll find your way. Although my son is too young for a full day float trip on the river, or a half day wading trip for that matter, I long for the day I can take him with me on a man weekend of our own, perhaps with friends like Andy and his son. But until then, we will walk down the old path by our lake house, an old road, if you will, and sit along the bank of the Tennessee River with a rod and reel in hand, 
and we'll dangle our feet over the edge of the seawall and watch the orange bobber rise and fall in the wake of each passing boat. And the fish may or may not bite, but all will be right in his little world as well as mine. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider writing a review, or better yet, sharing it with a friend. We hope these stories encourage you to write your own stories, sharing your own adventures in the storied outdoors. <laughs> <laughs>